This is a world of hidden mics and two-way mirrors. A world where nothing is private. You think we can do this? Later in the week. Harry Cole is an expert. The best there is. Let me tell you something about Harry Cole. The best bar none. I'll drink to that. Best what? The best bugger on the West Coast. What about me? He can bug anybody, anytime, anywhere. Nobody knows how you did it, though, Harry. It was the hell of a scandal, too. Where? Did you see him? The man with the hearing aid, like Charles. He's been following us all They're not people to him. Just voices. Three people were murdered, that's all. He doesn't know them, and they don't know him. It had nothing to do with me. I mean, I just turned in the tapes. Bless me, Father, perhaps, and I've been involved in some work that I think could be used to hurt these two young people. No responsible. I'm not responsible. I'm... You're not supposed to feel anything about it. You're just supposed to do it. Be careful, Harry. You're just supposed to listen. Not look. Not feel. Not care. Welcome to episode 38 of American History 2. I'm Mark McClay, and you'll never guess who I'm joined by today. It's Malcolm Craig. Hello, Malcolm. I was hoping you are going to say the ghost of Richard Nixon. <laughs> that would be entirely appropriate. Yes, hello, Mark. And, and also welcome uh, to our guest today, appearing for the 356th time on American History 2. It's our old friend, Fraser McCallum. Thank you, guys. Uh, a bit less of the old. I've, I've just had a birthday, so I'm feeling a bit sensitive about that, but it's nice to be back again. You care to tell the audience what number? No, not in the slightest. <laughs> so, I mean, today is kind of going to be a wee bit more of a, a relaxed podcast. You know, it's summer after all, and the next podcast we're doing is on race riots, so we're going to try and keep this one a wee bit light. Um, and we're going to be looking at uh, what we've got down here as the paranoid cinema of the 1970s. Now, this is very much one of these topics where you two do seem to know everything about everything, have a great amount of knowledge about what I know very little of. Um, so first things first, gentlemen, what exactly is the paranoid cinema of the 1970s and uh, and why should our listeners care about it? And I'll go to you first, Fraser, on that. Well, I mean, it's quite a hard thing to define in, in some respects because it encompasses a, a wide range of films over a certain period of years, but... Ultimately, it's a, a sort of cycle of films which are in many ways not connected, but are sort of joined by uh, a sort of, they share a common uh, series of themes and they all come out in a sort of period between uh, 19, I don't know, the early 1970s and, uh, and the late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, at a time in which, as we, we listeners of this podcast will know, uh, there was a lot of uh, tumult and controversy and the uncovering of little scandals and bigger scandals that uh, involved the US government. So there's a cycle of films which seem to reflect on that um, zeitgeist, comment on it, and maybe reflect back on it. Um, as to why people should care, well, aside from the fact that some of these are, are fine fine films that, that, that bear repeat viewing, 
Um, I think we're possibly entering a new phase where the American political culture might have some resonance with those uh, 1970s scandals uh, and possibly uh, we might see a resurgence in those kind of films, but that's possibly uh, speculate. Well, that's speculation and something we can maybe talk about at the end, but ultimately they're, they're just very good movies and uh, they, they have a lot to say about the culture of the time and they help think they help historians certainly understand uh, that period in a slightly different way that, than, than just simply looking at documents and, and secondary sources. Yeah, I mean, they're absolutely reflective, as Fraser says, of the background of 1970s America. You know, we have the a time of emerging and deepening distrust of government as a result of, you know, scandals and events of the 1960s, the Kennedy assassination, for example, and then the Vietnam War and the the sense that America has somehow gone astray, the emerging Watergate scandal with Richard Nixon, and then concerns over, uh, you know, mis- misdeeds and misdoings by the the US intelligence community, particularly the CIA and its activities both at home and abroad. So they're very much reflective of this sense that uh, there is something to be mistrusted within government and the intelligence community, and America is in some ways not the country that people think it is. Uh, and there's, there's a whole bunch of films, as Fraser said, they're not really connected uh, in any kind of significant way other than by these themes and ideas and ways of thinking about the United States. Okay, um, so so you've kind of convinced me on the on the on the purpose for having this podcast at all. So congratulations. Um, but I, when we first started chatting about this podcast, you guys gave me a big list of films, um, and but we've decided to sort of narrow it down to four that we're really gonna gonna talk about. And uh, perhaps the most famous of all the films is, is all the President's Men. Um, obviously about the the Watergate scandal. Then we have the, the conversation. The Parallax View and Three Days of of the Condor, and all these films come out within a within a within a two year period between 1974 and 1976. So I'm guessing, I mean, aside from all the President's Men and the obvious connection there, I mean, is it unsurprising that these are all coming out just after Richard Nixon's uh, resigned from office um, and? And, and the two years that sort of follow what was known as the nation's long national nightmare and everything. Well, I mean, I don't think I mean I don't think it's much of a surprise. Culture reflects the era in which it comes from, and the era in which it comes from reflects the culture that surrounds it. It's a kind of feedback loop between the two. Uh, I mean, the conversation is, I think, one of the one of the key ones, and it's become indelibly associated with the atmosphere of the Nixon years. But the but the conversation was the script was written many many years before Nixon actually came to power. Uh, so it's not it was not initially intended to be about Nixon, but about this this atmosphere of mistrust about spying, about surveillance, about the nature of American state, corporate and intelligence power. And I do think it is one of the one of the key films of the era. And, and one of the for me it's my favourite one. I, I love the conversation. I think it's a brilliant film. Uh, but I think you know Fraser can perhaps uh, you know speak more uh, more deeply uh, about the nature of the film and what it says. Well, the, the interesting thing about the conversation is that it, it, in many ways, because it's all really about audio surveillance and unpicking and unpacking things that are recorded on tape that are maybe not meant for public consumption. So it has obvious parallels to Watergate. But like Malcolm said, the, the script for it was written in the, the 1960s. And 
the only reason it really comes out in 1974, the only reason it even gets made is because the director and writer, Francis Ford Coppola, had achieved this extraordinary success uh, two years previously with uh, a little-known film, uh, The Godfather, which <laughs> became briefly the most successful film of all time for a what would be an R-rated in, in the States gangster period film. So that's kind of a remarkable um, remarkable achievement. And and sort of as a result of uh, of the success of that and Paramount Pictures being desperate for him to make The Godfather Part Two. You know, part of that deal was that you could also make the conversation, which was a much more uh, niche, artistic, very uh, European-influenced film. Now, anyone that knows anything about Hollywood of this time will know that it's sort of been influenced for, by these new young filmmakers who were deeply in love with uh, European, in particular French and Italian cinema. Uh, so this is not necessarily a commercial film. Uh, Gene Hackman wasn't... the I mean, he was quite a big star because he'd, he'd won the Oscar for the French Connection a couple of years before, but, you know, he, he wasn't a, a, a big movie star in the same way that, say, uh, some other, Warren Beatty or Robert Redford, some of the other actors that are in the films we're going to talk about were. So it's not, and it was by no means a hit. Uh, it, was, you know, it was very successful with critics, but it, uh, it was not a, a big Hollywood film. So the, the fact that it even exists is, is purely down to um, the economics of Hollywood and, and wheeling and dealing, and it's not... You know, it's, it's not accurate to, to identify it as this sort of um, the, the, this lead film in the, the pushback against Nixon or in the reflection on Watergate. But with Hollywood, timing is everything. And so as Malcolm says, it's become indelibly linked with, uh, with Watergate. The film, for all that, is not about politics or deep state, as we refer to now, or, or, or the CIA or any of these things. It's actually... Relatively tawdry, it's to do with a, a sort of you know a sexual liaison between a couple and the uh, who, the, the 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 other half, the, the the cheated upon party is the person who. I mean, I don't want to. I'm a bit way of spoiling the film for anyone that's not listened to it, but then it did come out in 1974, so you've had ample opportunity to see it. But ultimately, the the film is really about this one individual whose whose job it is is to to record. Um, conversations and he's a um, surveillance whiz and he is given this job to do, he picks up on something in this recorded conversation and it, he becomes obsessed with it and it's about trying to unpack what this means and does, is it potentially going to lead to uh, violence or, or murder or something which, which he's had experience of before. So really what the film's about is surveillance and technology uh, and the paranoia that come with those things, I would say, is, is the, the underlying theme of that film. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Malcolm. I was just going to pitch in there, say it's probably quite interesting you say it was written in the 60s, Malcolm, because I remember, you know, in 1968, there's a big sort of crime law that's been debated when LBJ is still president, and one of the big things in it is to whether wiretapping should be legal. Um, and I think they eventually come down on the side of it does get passed with wiretapping, but LBJ expresses a lot of reservations about, about going down that road. So I suppose that's linked in. The other thing I kind of wanted to ask as um, this one would be directed at you, Malcolm, is the one thing that struck me in all the films that I watched is that there's no outside enemy. This is America being introspective about itself and not, you know, the Russians aren't there as the baddies um, as, as they might have been in previous generations. Like, 
not not just thinking about Nixon's role in in Watergate, but also you know the the sort of pursuing the policy of detente. Um, do you think that is allowed that that sort of influenced a lot of these films that they're you know they're looking at America rather than looking at the the bad guys from outside and what they're going to come and do? I think it's less to do with with detente and more to do with as we've talked about before with Fraser with the Kennedy assassination. And this, this shift from the fear of being subverted by the external enemy and its allies inside America to being subverted by, by the government and by government, uh, agencies and institutions or by business and all that kind of thing as, as well. I mean, that is not an entirely new theme, but I think the, certainly the, the Kennedy assassination has been written about by, by many more well-informed scholars than I on this topic. The, the you know the Kennedy assassination is a Rosetta Stone. It's been described by to understanding this conspiracy theorizing and the transition from fear of the the external enemy that's typified by the McCarthyite uh, witch hunts to the fear of the the internal enemy that is within government. Government becomes the enemy. Agencies become the enemy. Business becomes the enemy. So I think it's interesting if we think back to, you know, when Malcolm mentioned in the Kennedy assassination, there are, there are a couple of films that sort of link that, uh, that, in, that incident, that event with this later period that we're talking about um, in the early 60s, so between 62 and 64, we have films like um, Manchurian Candidate and Seven Days in May, uh, both of which are somehow connected to uh, internal villains and this external threat that Mark, uh, Mark just mentioned has been absent from the later films. So, um, for example, Seven Days in May is about a, a military coup that takes place in the United States, um, which comes up. So again, the, the villain here is this sort of Curtis LeMay type figure who's obsessed with, but he's obsessed with the danger posed by this relatively liberal president versus the threat of nuclear annihilation from the, the Soviet Union. So there's we should, sort of, Sorry, we should just quickly say Curtis LeMay was the extreme right wing and then he was eventually George Wallace's vice presidential candidate, if I remember correctly, as well. He was, yeah, yeah. He was, yeah, just for the listeners to know who he was. Very, very fond of uh, of bombing. <laughs> he, yes. he liked to bomb things. and, and he got, a taste, got a taste for it in World War Two, and just, yeah, just well, wanted he, to do some more of it. Yeah, you know, he, was, he was the guy behind the, the sort of extreme firebombing of uh, Tokyo, along with uh, one of the people who worked for him was uh, Robert McNamara, who we'll probably talk about a little bit uh, as we go on. But um, so Seven Days in May is, is, is kind of symptomatic of this sort of, conspiratorial thought that goes along with the Kennedy assassination, this uh, creation of John F. Kennedy as a, as a liberal president who wanted to end the Cold War, which is not particularly true, but but that's the, the sort of image that's created in the post-assassination uh, discourse, certainly on the left. Uh, so that film ties in a lot with that, uh, and it actually comes out after Kennedy's assassination. So in subsequent years, it becomes a sort of uh, really important visual document before the uh, before the Zapruder films released. I mean, you can go back and we've also discussed this at length on a previous podcast, but, but before all that sort of information becomes public domain, Seven Days in May is a sort of touchstone for uh, assassination researchers. And then likewise, the Manchurian Candidate, which I imagine a lot of listeners will have seen either in its original form or in the, the remake with Denzel Washington from which seems like a couple of years ago, but I think it's probably about 15 years ago now. <laughs> um, 
but that that that's to do with this uh, idea of for, foreign influence and then that being adapted by uh, adopted by uh, an, an internal threat. So it, it works with both these ideas, uh, and again was kind of significant in talking about potential uh, motivations behind the, the Kennedy assassination was, for example, the Harvey Oswald I'm Manchurian candidate as in a brainwashed assassin. So this conspiratorial stuff is there. And it also existed even previous to this, but in, as Mark sort of was hinting at, um, it used to always be about the Russians and it would often be in the form of allegory, science fiction, that sort of thing. So there's a, a, there's a through line of conspiratorial American cinema that sort of takes a break in the, the late 60s while real events are unfolding that are far more uh, extreme than anything Hollywood comes up with. And then we sort of pick this up again um, uh, around the Watergate era and we actually... Most of the films don't deal with Watergate. They deal with they're, they're sort of reflecting back again on the culture of assassination. So the Kennedy assassination, the Robert Kennedy assassination, the assassination of Martin Luther King, uh, and all this stuff that's coming out around the Church Committee, which you had a, a, an excellent episode on, you know, a few months back, uh, is all happening at the same time that, that these films are being produced. So that you know is where we get things like the Parallax View and uh, Three Days of the Condor. So yeah, I mean, you you bring up Three Days of the Condor, um, which I actually just watched last night. It's a great film; really enjoyed it. Um, and in it, the the sort of without giving too much away, um, it's people within the CIA that are the the quote unquote baddies um, of that. And I, I think you know I mentioned Nixon and Watergate as being a key key touchstone earlier, but. One of the things I, I thought was maybe more important and is maybe the, the, the Pentagon Papers um, and the release of those, you know, with Daniel Ellsberg and eventually getting them in the public domain probably made Nixon angrier than anything to do with Watergate was, was seeing this, this body of research that had been conducted in secret by the American government was sort of undermined much of what Johnson and Nixon had told the nation um, about, the, about the war in Vietnam. Well, it's one of the, I mean, it's one of the first major, you know, leaks uh, of this year. And I mean, Nixon gets agitated, but I mean, the Pentagon Papers in reality doesn't have, it doesn't say anything about the Nixon administration. It only goes up to the Johnson administration. But but Nixon detests the idea of leakers. He detests the idea of his governmental authority being subverted and all of these kind of things. And hence, this begins this cascade, this avalanche of efforts to try and you know stop leakers and stop the subversion of government, all these kind of things. And Nixon ends up subverting government in the biggest way possible. Uh, so, I mean, the Pentagon Papers are obviously important and it gives the American people a new understanding of of the Vietnam War, something that has been part of American thinking in a generalized way for for many, many years. And America had been fighting the good war in Vietnam, had been fighting against the spread of international communism for American national security, which Lyndon Johnson fundamentally believed that America's fight in Vietnam was a fight for American national security and a fight for American credibility. And it turns out, with the publication by various newspapers of extracts from the Pentagon Papers, that the government had been lying to them about many important parts of the Vietnam War and the reasons why America was in Vietnam and the length of American involvement in Vietnam had been lying to them for decades. And that obviously has a corrosive effect 
on on trust in government. And when when Three Days of the Condor comes out, this is at the moment in time in 1975, where there are major revelations about America's intelligence community, as we covered in our uh, podcast episode with with Daffy Townley about the Church Committee and about the you know the Pike Committee and the, the Rockefeller Commission. There are major exposés about what the CIA has been doing both at home and abroad. Now, it's not meant to be operating at home. So this and the Three Days of the Condor is very much about the malfeasance and the undemocratic activities and, and the anti-democratic activities of, of the CIA. So, if, I mean, it, but it fits in with the overall kind of thinking of the time. Another interesting thing, when you talk about uh, Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers and... And you think who the hero of uh, Three Days of the Condor is. Condor is a, he's a CIA guy, but he's a bookish CIA guy. He, he's a researcher who works under this um, this sort of, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's like a, a literary organization. The American Historical it? Literary Society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that, that's the sort of code name for his, his group. And uh, so he's the hero of this. He's very much in the Ellsberg mode. Uh, or, or the way Ellsberg is, is sort of portrayed a little bit in, in the, the media. Uh, subsequent heroes are, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, her journalists. Um, uh, Faye, uh, Warren Beatty's character in Parallax View is a journalist. So there, there's a sort of um, a kind of a literary movement here, like a sort of people who do things with books and papers and writing and research are good guys, and people who who do things with uh, covert operations are are not to be trusted. See, so, yeah, I mean, we the one film that we we touched on earlier, but I don't think we really got into it in, in enough detail. It's quite an important one, particularly when we're thinking of assassinations and everything. Is the is the parallax view? So, like, what what what's going on with the parallax view, and why is it an important cultural touchstone? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, the parallax view kind of brings together many of these kind of threads and themes. I mean, the key character, and it's uh, is Warren Beatty's uh, Joe Frady, who's the is this probably handsome reporter. Uh, but but it kicks off really interestingly with the uh, this assassination of a, a presidential candidate who also happens to be a senator and is very much reflecting as we talked about earlier the the assassination of uh, of Robert Kennedy uh, in 1968 and it all kind of gets to, I don't want to give again we don't want to kind of give too many spoilers in this but it becomes tied up in this the idea of this sinister secretive organization called the Parallax Corporation, all to do with political assassinations and machinations and all these kind of things. I don't want to give too much away, as I said, but it's fascinating that it, that it starts off with something which is obviously echoing and very consciously replicating the assassination of Robert Kennedy and tying it into the, the sense that there are bigger forces there which are at work trying to affect the American body politic. But I mean, but within that, there's some really, really key moments in that uh, in that film, which kind of bring it all together. And I think Fraser, when we were talking earlier, you know, mentioned that there's one particular bit that he'd really like to to talk about, which which is really, really important in the parallax view. Fraser, take it away. So that again, with the caveat of trying not to give anything away, there's a scene uh, quite late on in the film, which is a a scene that is about brainwashing. And we won't go into who's been brainwashed or why or, or what the, the reason for that is, but essentially the screen fills with this montage and it goes on for several minutes. Actually, somebody has has cut it out of the DVD and put it on YouTube. So you can check this scene out if you just want to. It's remarkable. And it's a series of uh, 
big words, you know, like uh, love and duty and all, all different hate and all different, big, you know, bold words on the screen intercut with uh, images, many of which are iconic images of the period. So you've got some of the classic uh, Vietnam War photographs. Um, you've got uh, photographs of Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon. It goes back to Eisenhower. You've got uh, all, all different ones, and and all these sort of like, and it, the, the editing gets faster, and the sound becomes quite intense. And the reason I think it's important is it it pulls together all these threads of the the real politics that are, are in the the ether that are, are the inspiration for these films. So you have you know you have for example you have this one scene of uh, Kennedy, and then you have the the word me comes up, and then it cuts to a shot of Lee Harvey Oswald and it's this whole, you know, it, it, it starts off very conventionally and then builds to this really odd uh, sequencing of photographs that disorientates the viewer. And then, as I say, the, the sound that goes with that um, gets more and more intense. And I think it's really important because it brings in this whole idea of uh, of technology. Um, and I think technology is the, the thing that pulls all these films together, whether it's uh, surveillance technology or whether it's um, the technology of um, assassination through brainwashing or, or whatever it is, um, particularly audio and visual technology. Um, and this scene, I think, brings us uh, to fruition more than anything. It's um, almost like subliminal imagery. It's almost like subliminal um, audio. It's... Uh, particularly key when talking about the assassination films, but it also harks back to the conversation, which we talked about is all about um, what's on tape, which obviously links to the um, Watergate uh, scandal. So I think that scene, more than anything, is that if you if you wanted to pick one scene from all of these films we've talked about that uh, is sort of the synthesis of, of this genre, this loose genre of, of films, then that scene in the Parallax View is the one to go for because it's the most tense and paranoid and disturbing of the lot and it's all down to the editing and the, the, the filmmaker did a you know a magnificent job in that. Um, but that's definitely one to check out if you want to sort of understand what we mean, I think, by the, the paranoid style in American cinema as opposed to the paranoid style in American politics. Yeah, and to, to sort of take a take a bit of a, a sharp sharp turn away in terms of in terms of what we've been talking about how these films are influenced by their times and uh, the sort of big events um, and movements that are sort of going on in this era. And one thing that strikes me, though, is how little they're influenced by the civil rights movement or the feminist movement because these films are, almost all the characters are white Um Almost all the like all the heroes are male. They're all white males that are heroes. The female characters of the movies I've seen are pretty two dimensional. Like to to me, it's almost like you're still living in an America that has been unchanged by these two huge cataclysmic sort of movements that have been happening in the sixties and seventies. Yet they're so influenced by by what's been going on on in, in terms of Nixon and Watergate, and I find that quite interesting that Hollywood hadn't really reformed in any way by this point. I mean, is that fair to say? Or, you know, have I just watched the four wrong films to watch? No, it's, it's absolutely fair to say, and it, it's got nothing even to do with genre. I mean, you will struggle to pick out, um, you know, many key films of the period that uh, deal with civil rights or give prominent roles to... I mean, you can't, you can't name very many prominent African-American leading actors or actresses of the period. 
you know, Sidney Poitier is so famous because he's an outlier. Um, and Hollywood is a huge, big machine. It's like, Hollywood is like a warship. It takes a long time for it to turn and adapt and to move. It's it's not a it's not a it's not a jet fighter. <laughs> you know, it's not nubile. It doesn't <laughs> it doesn't turn quickly. It doesn't adapt quickly. Uh, and it bases what it does on what has worked before and always has done, does to this day. Superhero films make a billion dollars. They're going to make 10 superhero films. And that, that was the same in the late 60s and early 70s as well, if not even more so. Uh, what What's interesting is you, you had these um, smaller, lower budget films that had a position in the marketplace there that don't necessarily exist today with the exception of the occasional thing like uh, Spotlight from a couple of years ago, for example, that uh, were able to be made on a much more consistent basis. But they're all made by white male directors and they all have white male stars. And uh, so you're absolutely right to identify that. There's, uh, and part of that's you know, people working from the same, the same pool, the same pool of actors. You have a low-budget script that people are raving about, so you need to get a big-name actor on, so you're still going to the Warren Beatty's and the Robert Redford's, many of whom are... Or you know liberal icons in Hollywood who you know were politically active for, on 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 the the side of civil rights and feminism and what have you. Although I don't know if we can describe Warren Beatty as a feminist, but um, the so you're absolutely right to highlight that the, the female characters in these films are are secondary at best, and um, not particularly uh, well drawn. I mean that's not to say there aren't great roles for women in this period, and there are, uh, but just not in these films. These films are dealing with what's deemed to be a masculine world and say they're populated by masculine actors, particularly masculine, virile type actors, you know, um, say Robert Redford, Warren Beatty, Paul Newman, these sort of people that are, are in these films. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's definitely a flaw in the, in the if you compare the historiography or, or you compare the, the events of the time to, to what's been represented on screen. Entirely agree with what, what Fraser said. And I mean, Hollywood is being being driven by what it sees as its big market and its big market is, is white folks, you know, I mean, and you know, so it doesn't see any need to cater to, you know, anything other than, uh, a, you know, a, a white audience and, you know, an audience of, you know, men who are going to be attracted to these, you know, there's all, you know, these complex things bound up in this, but I entirely agree. I mean, they are, they are very white, very male dominated, uh, films. Well, that actually leads me on to my next question. Like, how successful were these films we're talking about? Obviously, we've not talked about perhaps the most famous one yet, All, all, all the President's Men, which we'll come on to. But, I mean, as a group, you know, were these box office successes? Well, certainly uh, The Parallax View and Three Days of the Condor were were fairly successful films financially. Uh, the conversation less so, but see, it's become the critical darling of of all of them. Um, I think it won uh, the Palme d'Or at Cannes. It certainly won some major... Uh, uh, all the President's Men is probably the most successful of them all because it's uh, ripped from the headlines kind of stuff. You know, it's hot in the heels of Nixon's resignation. It's hot in the heels of the publication of the the book based on um, the investigations by Woodward and Bernstein. Uh, it was nominated for Academy Award for Best Picture. So, you know, there's definitely... A, like, there's, there's absolutely an appetite for these films. They, they don't... They're sort of overshadowed a couple of years later or around the same sort of time as All the President's Men comes out by films like uh, Jaws and Star Wars and these films that have a completely different release pattern and totally redefine what Hollywood expects uh, by success. 
So in that respect, they sometimes get lost in that conversation between uh, The Godfather and The Exorcist at the early part of the, the decade, which are big successes, and then these massive successes slightly later on. Uh, so some of these films get lost in that shuffle, but they're you know they're certainly in the top ten of their respective years box office takings. You know they they're um, popular films with very very popular uh, leading men. So they're, mm-hmm. they're you know they're successful certainly, and and they're by and large have a fairly good critical consensus both at the time uh, and even today they they've held up quite well. So they're they're well regarded in that respect as well. Okay, so let's let's come along then to to all the president's men, the sort of uh, the, the blockbuster I suppose out of all the all these films. So all the president's men is an interesting one because it's one of these films that you know as historians looking at. You know, when we often sort of go back and look at, well, we can always nitpick about stuff in films. And, like, there's no doubt that, that All the President's Men really inflates the role of of Woodward and Bernstein, played respectively by Robert Redford and, and Dustin Hoffman. Um, but, I mean, it, it, it's, it, seems, it seems to me that it did a pretty good job with what must have been quite a tricky... Um, movie to like write and film as you know only a, it comes out only a couple of years after Nixon actually resigns. Um, I mean, I, I don't know what the two of you made of it, whether you're fans or not. But I, I thought as a historical movie goes, while they did, they were getting at the essential truth, which is essentially what I want from a historical film. I mean, I like it. I mean, I like it from the point of view of its of its pacing, of the of the tension, of the sense of unease and discomfort, and and all of the things, all of the paranoia. I mean, that's what we're talking about, you know. And the, the paranoia of it comes through. Where there is a, I think, and you identified this. Where there is a problem for me with it is it's, and this comes from the source material and all these kind of things. The the extreme valorization of Woodward and Bernstein. As as the two heroic individuals who uncovered this this awful assault on the American system of government, and it's true. I mean, Woodward and Bernstein did play an important role, but they were not the only journalists uh, working on it, and they were not the only individuals uh, concerned about it. There were individuals within government, within agencies. I mean, you know, Deep Throat, the the you know the famous. Uh, source for much of their uh, their kind of key key findings was the deputy deputy director of the FBI, you know W. Mark Felt. Uh, so that I mean, nobody knew that at the time. But so on on one hand, it works exceptionally well as a thriller uh, of the era. Uh, but there's this kind of ahistorical valorization of of Woodward and Bernstein, which you know can give people a slightly skewed view of what happened during Watergate. So I mean I'd agree with that to to a large extent. I I think it's a great film. Um, it's a film that would never be made today, previously because Malcolm sort of identified that the the pacing of the film is is for modern audiences I think is quite slow. Um, but uh, what it does is it unfolds the story in a way in which I think people who were around for Watergate would have recognised it was a slow drip feed of tidbits and information and. Whilst it does obviously plays heavy important, uh, far too much importance on Woodward and Bernstein as individuals, I think it does a good job of. Um, well, firstly, it highlights this sort of prickly relationship between them at the start. You know, they, they have this kind of antagonistic beginning, uh, which is not necessarily something you'd expect from a hagiography. Um, I think you get 
you see that there's really strong support from the editorial staff at the, the Post, so it's not necessarily these two maverick uh, reporters, you know, fighting against the system. Um, so I think in some ways they stand in for the the wider uh, journalistic community that were taking an interest in, in Watergate. I still think it's remarkable that uh, that, that Warner Brothers and, and the filmmakers weren't able to <laughs> convince um, Woodward and Bernstein to give up their source. I think that's, that's a pretty amazing thing if you think about it, that, that the pressure on them must have been unbearable. Um, that would have made the, the film a, give the film a proper proper scoop to get to, to get its teeth into but I, I think it's a it's a very fine film uh, I think it it sticks more or less to the facts with obviously added invention uh, but but I think as Mark identified like it gets to the the core truth I think of the of the the, the events which is really all we could expect from a, a two hour two hour twenty film yeah and then the other thing I kind of wanted to mention as well about all the president's men is I mean, we've already mentioned the valorizing of uh, of Woodward and Bernstein, but I think just more generally, it's the sort of its effects. You know, I've read many an article um, that has almost been critical of how 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 good a light they ended up showing journalists in, because it sort of created this sort of generation of journalists who wanted to be the next Woodward and Bernstein, but then would often become sort of got your journalism and. You know, trying to always trying to find if there was someone was having a sexual affair or something. I remember, like, you know, when Gary Hart came there, uh, get sort of lost as as his presidential candidacy in the nineteen eighties, and he was found to have had an affair. Like the, I remember reading a piece that argued it was all sort of a uh, all the president's men's fault because had all these journalists desperate to sort of make make their own big splash. Um, but it, but it's interesting how I think what it did more than anything was cement that image of the Watergate years in the American public's mind, um, sort of that atmosphere of, of, of thinking and knowing your president's done something wrong and seeing bit by bit it come out and f- feeling powerless for a long time before eventually bringing them down. But there is an important point there about the, about the way that journalism is responding to both government scandals and government malfeasance, but also the existence of, to put it in a two-word phrase, the secret state. And so you have in the in America, you have whistleblowers uh, coming out. You have Ellsberg, but then you also have former CIA figures like uh, like Philip Agee, former CIA uh, you know covert uh, operations officer. You have figures like Victor Marchetti and everything who bring out books which are exposing uh, the workings of the CIA and work the, exposing the workings of the secret state as well. And that you also see that in Britain with uh, American journalists like Mark Hosenball, who works with Philip Agee, who expose various aspects of CIA operations in Europe. And then British journalists like uh, Duncan Campbell, who exposes the existence of uh, government communications headquarters, GCHQ in Britain in 1976, and becomes a firm opponent of the secret state. And he's following the tradition of, you know, well, uh, journalists who expose various parts of governmental goings on, like Henry Chapman Pincher, and films like that, uh, individuals like that. And in America, you have other figures that are critical in this, like Seymour Hersh, who's the one who exposes the CIA's family jewels, which leads to the Church Commission investigations and all these kind of things. So there are very many more important developments going on in journalism and whistleblowing and an assault on the edifice of the secret state. And that takes place very differently in America to it does in Britain. 
if we kind of want to compare the two of those, maybe in another podcast. But there's there's an assault on the idea of the secret state. Yeah, so, I mean, sort of throwing forward then, and, and we're going to come on maybe to, to touch on how, how films like All the President's Men might are becoming maybe more relevant now with what's going on with, with the Donald Trump um, and, and, and the sort of the whole kind of Russia thing and everything. But, I mean, does, what happens to this genre of films? Does it does it stick around? Does it become an established genre that Hollywood revisits in the ensuing four decades? Or do these types of energies start to get channeled into, for example, you know, sort of the, the glut of Vietnam War films that will come out at the end of the 70s, the early 80s? Um, I mean, what, what kind of happens? What direction does Hollywood travel after this? The crushing success of the summer blockbuster. <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, Fraser's already pointed to it. There is a point in the, the mid to late 1970s, and with Jaws and Star Wars, I mean, Fraser's dead right, that they set the pattern for the for the, the summer blockbuster or the big blockbuster movie releases we know it, that kind of become in some way, and this is a massive oversimplification, but become this juggernaut, which is essentially crushing, you know, crushing all before it. So... You know, that's a, that's a very glib answer to the question. Fraser will have something much more reasoned and much more articulate than that. But I mean, I, that's a, a very kind, but um, we'll see how true that is. But you, you do find hints of, uh, I, I think that this sort of paranoia becomes, it just becomes accepted. It becomes part of, it becomes de rigueur in these films. Uh, one that always strikes me as, uh, as an odd one is, um, is the second Rambo film which is always portrayed as this huge patriotic piece of nonsense propaganda. But actually at its heart is, um, is a government conspiracy. Like the, the whole point of the film is that there are these, you know, there was this whole trend about um, missing POWs that had been abandoned in Vietnam and it comes back around as a sort of zeitgeisty thing in the early to mid 80s. But the heart of this film is that actually that's true and that the the US government representative is someone who's trying to make that go away and not in the sense of sending Rambo in to rescue them. In fact, he sends Rambo in to make sure that no evidence comes back that they're there. And, uh, and Rambo's actually this kind of bizarrely countercultural figure at the same time as being the poster boy for, you know, Reagan's foreign policy and all this stuff. So it becomes a, almost sort of it's indelibly linked to any sort of film that deals with American politics. So by the time you get to to JFK, which is this you know bonkers uh, amalgamation of every conspiracy, Oliver theory. Stone on acid, yeah, 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 <laughs> um, which is just Oliver Stone, really. Is um, <laughs> you know by the time you get here, because you know that that film is enormously successful, and it's not just enormously successful because it's seen as fantasy. It's just seen as entirely plausible that everyone's out to get you. Uh, so, you know, I think you'll find plenty of examples of, of big mainstream films that have form of uh, government conspiracy as, as their... Uh, well, yeah, no, well, me, me and Malcolm discussed uh, when we were chatting about this a, a couple of weeks ago. I mean, Enemy of the State, you know, well, who, who shows back up in that? Yeah, Gene Hackman. Enemy of the State is, and some people think that the character in Enemy of the State is essentially the same character Harry Cole that he plays in uh, in the conversation. And there's actually a lot to to commend that that reading of. But Enemy of the State's a good example. It's a big glossy summer film with Will Smith, who at that time was the king of Hollywood. Um, and yeah, it deals with uh, again deals with surveillance and conspiracy, and 
So certainly, mm. I mean, certainly by the 1990s, you have this resurgence in conspiracy theory and paranoia, and you know, you get things like uh, the, the, the X Files is the biggest thing on TV, and say I already mentioned JFK had come out, and uh, Enemy State will come from this period as well. So, you know, I think it, it then just becomes a trope and, and an accepted part. It's much less of a commentary on on anything by that point. I think it's just become a a crutch for multiple genres to use. It's not connected to anything. I mean, there's there's obviously this uh, this other conspiracy theory that permeates the entirety of the 1990s, which is your the vast right wing conspiracy that Hillary Clinton commented on as the you know what white water and, and and all that stuff. But but these don't seem to be connected in any way to me. The the the, the things that happen in these 1990s films seem to be more are. Uh, a homage to these 1970s thrillers that we've been talking about rather than a comment on anything, particularly 1990s. Yeah. And I mean, also, I mean, this is that sort of an era when it's seen as sort of an unsexy topic to actually look at politics or government, you know, it's going to take the, the genius of Aaron Sorkin in the, in the West Wing and uh, the, the slightly less genius of the American president to bring that sort of back to be able to talk about government directly. So you need to do it in these sort of other ways, I would have thought. But anyway, let's throw right forward uh, to the present day um, and, and thinking about what's what's going on just now. And um, I'm going to ask you to, to sort of to make a prediction, not one that I'm not going to ask you how you think the Trump situation is going to turn out. You'll be delighted to know. Um, but do you see a resurgence coming in in terms of, of films that will... That will, well, for lack of a better word, I mean, do you just see the return of the paranoid cinema um, on the basis of of what's this drip, 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 drip of 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 scandal, and who knows what's going on uh, behind that's ever that's been happening ever since the Trump presidency and happened during the 2016 campaign with the sort of the sort of drip release of of, of secret documents and everything. I mean, do you do you see it coming back? Well, Nixon and the CIA were kind of, uh, in the 70s, mildly terrifying because at least they were competent. You know, they had a level of knowing what they're doing. Say what you like about Richard Nixon. I mean, <laughs> at least the man knew what he was doing. Well, Quasar knew what he was doing and he was trying to organise a cover-up. But, the, I mean, I, I, on, I honestly don't know. I mean, the Trump administration is seems to be so incompetent and so rubbish at what it's doing, I have I have no idea about what kind of cinema that gives. I mean, it's self-satirizing. So, I mean, who knows what kind of cinema that gives rise to, and what we'll see in terms of the. I I literally have no idea. I have I have stopped trying to make any kind of predictions about or comment upon the Trump administration because the entire thing is just baffling. I think we're we're obviously uh, far too early to to tell any of these things. I think there's uh, hints of things to do with the the culture of paranoia and suspicion that surrounded the Bush administration and uh, and conflict in Iraq and Patriot Act and all that sort of stuff that now seems like halcyon days of <laughs> easily understandable political discourse. But uh, so certainly, uh, it's kind of surprising. One is the way the um, the Marvel uh, films have went, particularly with their strand of of Captain America films. And anyone doesn't watch these these films, um, they tend to have their own little individual stories and then coalesce around it. You know, then come back together to have these big intergalactic battles with aliens and things in the team up films. But the, the Captain America ones are much more grounded in 
in, in reality in, in comparison to, to other ones for a you know genetically engineered super soldier. Um, but the last, the, the, the second one, which actually features Robert Redford, bizarrely, uh, or not, or perhaps um, deliberately, uh, comes back around to this idea of secret government and cabals within government, or in this case, within the fictional security intelligence service, uh, and and features a lot of the same sort of tropes that um, the seventies films did. And there were a lot of think pieces and, and media pieces at the time compare them. I think they were possibly overstating the fact and maybe running off in the direction of uh, they wanted to take because you know Robert Redford was in it and it deals with conspiracy theory. But the fact that that such a a huge tentpole blockbuster mainstream film in two thousand and fifteen or whenever this particular episode came out uh, was was dealing with these these themes is kind of interesting to me. Um, but as for uh, going forward, I mean we're, we're still sort of unpacking that bit. And there's there's something strange has happened in Hollywood in, in the last. 10 or 15 years and it's almost there's a sort of second Hollywood that that makes films for a particular audience so you you can find these you know you'll you, some uh, listeners may be familiar with uh, Dinesh D'Souza mm. who is a you know a right wing right wing conspiracy theorist really who who makes films for the the Alex Jones set I think uh, it's fair to say about how Obama's was not American and he was a socialist Manchurian candidate and uh and they made similar films with Hillary Clinton, and you you will find them on iTunes or wherever else you you buy your your films from. Uh, never saw a cinema here, um, but were actually massive financial successes in the United States because they made films for this particular constituency. They made them at a low budget, and sold them to the people who were ready and willing to buy this stuff. So you know things have changed. The economic model has changed slightly. That you can make these films and deliver them directly to. A core audience. This is again brings us back to Alex Jones, who's financially successful beyond our imagination um, by delivering to the converted already, and and that that is probably the way these things will go. You'll you'll see um, sort of pro-Trump conspiracy films about how the the big bad FBI were out to get them, uh, and and they'll be delivered directly to that portion of the electorate, and and likewise, uh, whether they'll ever be, you know, I think it will take a real cataclysmic or seismic political event along the lines of a Nixon, of Nixon's resignation to, to see a, a major mainstream film dealing directly with these events. But it wouldn't surprise me to see... It wouldn't, it wouldn't have surprised me to see, see films that sort of link to it were it not for the fact that that marketplace has shrunk, that Hollywood... Now, if you look at the number of films made in 2017... And compared to the number of films made in 1977, that, that number of films has shrunk drastically and the output is now based around these franchise films, as they call them, your Fast and Furious 29 or, you know, the newest Marvel film or the next Star Wars film. You know, the, the, the Hollywood studios are now so reliant on those films that there's less place for these smaller films that might deal with these things. So perhaps television is a more likely... Um, place where we'll see, you know, maybe we'll see the next great Aaron Sorkin series or, or what have you. Although I should say that um, the, the next year you should see the release of um, a film called The Papers, which is uh, about the Pentagon Papers. With, yes, um, yeah, yeah, with, yeah. With, But with uh, some little-known actors, uh, Tom Hanks, uh, 
the vastly overrated Meryl Streep, as the president would say, and uh, directed by Steven Spielberg. So that's a film that's going to obviously draw attention just from the people that are involved in it. And whether that will be successful and whether that will... Because uh, I, I still come back to the thing we said at the beginning of the podcast, that Hollywood still bases what it makes on what was successful last. So all you really need is one blockbuster or one extremely successful or awards-laden conspiracy paranoid film to do with the administration and then you may see a glut of them. But I, I would I would look towards Netflix or Amazon or, or conventional television for your your uh, fix in that regard. Yeah. I mean, that that's what seems quite interesting to us about me that I, I think it might be hard to do a podcast in 40 years like, you know, looking back at the quote unquote like whatever the sort of genre would be but just say for argument it's the paranoid cinema of the 2010s because it just seems to be getting so the culture is so diffuse now I mean you've got Hollywood you've got the the sort of right wing um, media output that you're talking about you've got Netflix you've got Amazon you've got all these things so how it's, it's not as easy to see how it would be able to talk about just like four films that, that, that really sort of shape a, a generation because most people in the country aren't seeing them because, you know, they're, they're in their own little silos and everything. So that, that, that will be much harder for the podcasters of 40 years from now to do an entire episode on. And I imagine we won't be them. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, thanks a lot for your your company as always gentlemen it was a it was an absolute pleasure it was a pleasure to be back on a good excuse to watch some cracking old films Mm -hmm. and thank you very much malcolm and thank you very much i didn't even mention the 1978 remake remake of invasion of the body snatchers that was some considerable restraint on your behalf i know know how much you love the body snatchers um anyway cool we'll be back next month it'll probably actually only be two or three weeks until it's in your feed since this one's came out a bit late and when we'll be looking at the long hot summer of race riots in the united states in 1967 until then have a great month see you later bye bye Bye. we're caught in a trap i can't walk